one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, before we get the show started, I wanted to let you know we are giving away a bunch of brand new Black Magic gear. Yeah, cameras, switchers, DaVinci Resolve licenses, a bunch of awesome stuff. So stay tuned to learn how you can enter to win free gear from Black Magic. And we're going to tell you all about it later on in this episode. Now cue the music. Hello, welcome to Just Shoot It, the podcast about filmmaking, storytelling, and directing. I'm Matt Enlow. And I'm Warren Kaplan, and today we're talking to Yulene Kwong, a director and filmmaker that has a really interesting and somewhat pertinent to this podcast story of how she got her start filmmaking, and she also made a show for New Form that just won a streamy called I Ship It, which you guys should definitely check out, and we will talk a lot about. And she's a really young filmmaker and kind of started doing this professionally somewhat recently and has really kind of skyrocketed, is working a lot, and has a really cool perspective on how to be a director. Yeah, I think it's especially interesting if you're the sort of person that has niche interests or kind of is interested in unique or offbeat things and how you can turn that interest into a superpower. But before we talk to Eulene, Matt, can you give me the Note edition of what you've been working on lately? Yeah, I mean, uh, things tend to get a little bit busier towards the end of the year, which is nice. So I've been running around a lot. But one thing that I've been really pleased has been going well is uh, I'm working on a, a new project with a buddy of mine who wrote a screenplay that I really liked and wanted to, to potentially develop into shooting. And so we, I've been working with him pretty regularly on a polish where we kind of sit side by side and kind of co-write together. He wrote, you know, a handful of drafts beforehand. So it's, you know, it's really just kind of sweetening things up, but it's been really great because it's fun to have another person to be accountable to, you know, so like scheduling things and like really figuring out when exactly I'm available to work on this project and then holding to it because he has to come over to my place or I have to go over to his has really meant that we've been, very consistent and very fast, which has been really fun. And also it's a real gift to just rewrite something rather than start from scratch. You know, then you're just making things better and poking holes in things. So it's been a fun, unique experience for me that I recommend. You know, I think it's worth um, thinking through. It is a little tricky. I always am worried about writing partnerships, which is, this isn't a proper partnership. He wrote the script and I'm just doing a polish. So it's more of a director-writer relationship. But you know, I tend to be a little skeptical of those relationships because effectively it's a marriage, you know? And so mm-hmm. your tastes and senses of humor need to align. Everything has to align. Perfectly. And also, you know, if that thing goes and becomes, 
you know, your calling card or significant in your career. And then you two decide to part your separate ways. In a lot of ways, you're starting over from scratch again, you know, or at least that's been my experience and watching other people kind of have that experience. So yeah, so it's a new weird thing for me, but it's been super fun. And does he like your notes and stuff and your rewrites? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I said, it's so much easier to rewrite. So that's been great. It's just like you're pitching fun new ideas. But then also, I think the nice thing is that as a director and as a person who's logged, you know, a significant amount of time executing, really mostly what I'm doing beyond pitching and tightening is um, rephrasing and reworking ideas that are already there on the page, but maybe aren't as visual as they could be. Or figuring out things that maybe I know from experience an actor is going to have a hard time with or it's going to be hard to shoot or is going to be flatter than we want, basically. So it's really taking a director's eye to a screenplay that already has a ton going for it thematically and from a character and plot perspective. So we didn't realize how good of a match it was going to be when we first started. So it's been super fun. Yeah, I find that the director's viewpoint on a script is always it's just like a few degrees different than a writer's viewpoint and it can make all the difference in terms of the final product yeah you still have to have those fundamentals there but if you can add on top of that it's a real gift yeah uh Oren, what have you been working on lately well i just directed my first thing for funnier die last week it was a branded spot for call of duty infinite warfare coming out november 4th mm. and it was really fun actually and it, it came out good but what i thought was interesting is you know i do a lot of branded work and there's always like this crazy schedule and you get the script and we're going to shoot like next thursday and you know the client has eight million notes and they're always weird and then you shoot it you know and you edit it and it comes out like okay and you're always like well the script wasn't very good and so in this case i think what what we ended up with is pretty good and i think the client is happy with it I think I can blame the script a, a little bit for the parts that aren't working. But what's unique about this situation is that I wrote the script. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I usually don't write these things or like I'll do a pass or a polish right. or whatever. I'll add plus it, you know, like we always say. But, you know, it, it's just interesting that even if you have full control over the right. script and the product, like there is something about advertising and like shooting mm-hmm. for clients that just complicates everything you do and so i think one of the lessons i'm i'm relearning every time i do one of these things is just like if the idea can just be super super simple Mm -hmm. and just like at its core like good and relatable or funny then you can have an end product but as soon as like the details start like unfolding and unraveling and especially if the idea is just like mildly Mm -hmm. interesting to start with your end product it's just a really tough challenge to make it great even if you have full control because you're just you're just trying to please so many people so i don't know it was really fun i think it came out really good and funny and there's like some good lol moments even though i'm more of a haha type of guy mm. i'm more of a ha huh, that's funny kind of guy like how do you type that ha h a mhm period or just exclamation point enter I could see you right, huh? I think I have seen you right, huh? Yeah. Anyway, so yeah, so it was fun. I'm hoping I can do more things for them. It's also, it's like nerve wracking a little bit. The first thing you do for a company, you know, all these producers are so freaking busy. They're working like 10 projects at a time. You send them a cut and you're like, can't wait to see, like, you're just so nervous about whether they'll like it or not because you don't know if it's right. good, right? Because you directed it. 
and they don't write you back for like two days and you're like, oh no, they hated it. They're probably <laughs> replacing me. And then you're like, oh, I'm just checking in. Did you guys send the cut to the client? They're like, oh yeah, we loved it. We hope they love it. You're like, oh, you're like, why didn't you say yeah, so? Just right? tell me next time. <laughs> I think as a director working in marketing or advertising or branded content, like people forget that you're also like a sensitive artist type. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. Unless you're you tell them. expected to be a little hardened. Yeah. Yeah. That's really funny. So anyway, it's cool. Um, it'll probably be out by the time this podcast is out, November 4th. Great. Before November 4th. Okay, cool. cool. Well, let's talk to you, Lean. Yep. Hey, Eulene. Hey, Matt. How you doing? Good. Welcome to our podcast. Yeah, uh, thanks for coming. Eulene, you've got a killer career. I feel like you're constantly doing things. <laughs> Back at you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Look at that. So tell us just a little bit about how you broke into filmmaking. You know, I was doing a lot of like writing. I, I went to Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh. Um, they don't have a film program there. So I was a creative writing major and I was writing all these screenplays and handing them off to other people to direct and they kept fucking it up. So I was like, I should try this. So that's when I kind of started doing it. And then I moved out to LA, started doing YouTube videos, a couple of web series and kind of found a career from there. And here you are. And here I am sitting. Do you think a writer has ever written something and had someone else direct it and thought that it came out right? Probably not. I don't think (laughs) I've ever met an editor who was like, oh, they got enough footage. It's the same sort of thought. When you're like shooting with like eight cameras and I mean, from an editor's point of view, it's like, oh God, it's improv, like five cameras worth of improv. (laughs) like the worst so um you said you started doing youtube videos what was the first youtube video you did that kind of you know was impactful in some way for you so i uploaded like a short film that i did called the perils of growing up flat chested and this was i think in 2012 and right around that time my friend Sinead persad and i decided to shoot a sketch she had written called edgar Allan poe buys girl scout cookies And she asked me to direct it, and I knew that if I was going to do that, I wanted to spend money on, like, production design and make it pretty. And it became this, like, low-key thing that we were going to shoot on a weekend to, like, it costs $1,500, which is a lot of money when you're getting paid, like, $12 an hour at the NBC Page program. So, yeah. Wait, this was in L.A. or New York? This was in L.A. Okay. And so this is the Edgar Allan Poe video. Yes. So we did a sketch called Edgar Allan Poe Buys Girl Scout Cookies. But since we were already buying all these like props and stuff for that, I was like, we should do a web series to go with it. That's like kind of a vlog about Edgar Allan Poe keeping a writing vlog while a lady ghost is like haunting his study. And then the series A Telltale Vlog was born out of that. And we started a channel called Shipwrecked Comedy. And that was kind of like the first, yeah, that That was was where it started. Yes, tis I, Edgar Allan Poe. And welcome back, dear readers, dear watchers. I have brought with me a special guest, a raven. Do you have anything to plug? Yes, I do. I mean, a poem. A poem. Yes, it's not very good. Raven, don't don't say such things. No, but it's terrible. You're a hack. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's Lenore, people. What's up? Okay, can I just, can we just talk about, like, how creepy this place is? I'm pretty sure there are, like, hearts in the floorboards. 
like beating hearts. And were you shooting your own stuff and editing your own stuff or? Oh no, my, I had a cinematographer and he was also my editor at the time. He was also my ex-boyfriend at the time. So he was your ex at the time. <laughs> yeah. He was my ex at the time. We had moved out to Los Angeles together. Oh man. <laughs> Ooh, that's pretty good. Yeah. And do you still work with him? Yes. Um, we do work together. He is my boyfriend now. That's um, like when you get divorced and then marry someone else and then get divorced and then remarry your original person. Yeah. Basically. I'm really looking forward to that. It was like <laughs> yeah. that. Zach and I, he was the DP on the very first thing I had ever directed back in college. And then we dated for like a year and a half. We broke up for two years continued to work together through those two years which was don't recommend it <laughs> um yeah that's crazy yeah it was it was a weird you hear time. about that all the time like yeah. people like are always on set there's like exes and it's yeah it's how they make it work it's a whole thing yeah i mean i guess it makes sense to like if you if you if spend you, if, time if you spend time together and you're working together and you click creatively but it's don't the best. if you don't yeah, it's the best but like, if, you, if you don't click romantically that can still be confusing. You it, know what yes. I mean? Yeah. Because it's still such an intimate relationship mm-hmm. that it would be very easy to get muddled. Oh, absolutely. I right. have friends that were engaged to be married, then canceled the wedding last minute, like after the invites and everything were sent out. And now they're making a movie together. And, oh, my God. And they're each like the he's remarried someone else. He has a kid. Uh-huh. Like, But he's still with his ex. Like working together? Yeah. That's so fascinating. Yeah. I know. And I'm always like, how? How do you make it work? And they, how does his do, like, wife feel about that too, right? Well, yeah. I think, well, that that's like a separate thing, right? It's like, how do you keep your relationship while you work in this industry at all? <laughs> and she doesn't work in, she's not in the industry. But to me, there's something interesting about that drama that kind of fuels the creative work in oh, a way. Oh, yeah. Well, I, so I was working with my ex on a series called Kissing in the Rain. So it was so bizarre because he was my DP and also my very, like relatively recent ex. And we were shooting people like kissing, making out endlessly in front of us for like three days straight. And, and then just, not just making out, but like it's hyper romantic. hyper romantic. <laughs> there's like rain and there's like dialogue. And we're just like wet and miserable, like crammed yeah, yeah. behind the camera monitor because we're too broke to have like a separate monitor. And it was just like, uh, I hate you right now. <laughs> <laughs> so did you have to pay him when you were making all these things? I I always tried to pay my crew, um, even when I was doing like the low budget self-funded things, because it's like one thing if you're an indie filmmaker making one big project per year to ask for a favor of your friends. I think it's another thing when you're producing content on like a YouTube schedule where you have to kind of have something every maybe six weeks or something. There's just a limit on favors. So I started out paying everybody, I think, 100 a day. And then we started graduating to like 150 a day. And this was all when it was still like self-funded. And then once I started getting paid, I made sure like I boosted their salaries up to at least like 300 a day, which is again, still not much, but I- And you're I th- saying like everyone, like PA to DP? Or- um, I, I'm naming more like department heads, I think. Okay. Um, I, I still paid like the gaffers, grips, PAs, I think we did have a couple unpaid PAs in the beginning. And then, no, what happened was we didn't have PAs at all because I couldn't afford them and I didn't want to ask anybody to work for free. Yeah. And can I tell you the worst way to get PAs is Craigslist. Oh, God, no. <laughs> I probably Why had... So bad. I might be exaggerating, but I don't, I don't think I am. Then I have about a 60% no-show rate yeah. of PAs I've hired off Craigslist. Were, sort of like were they paid? Yeah, I mean... Yeah. You know, not great. Sometimes it's like 50 bucks or 100 right. bucks. I mean, this is 
I have not done it for a very long time, but I just kind of stopped. Oh, yeah. Well, so cool. So this is interesting, though, because I guess I hadn't thought about it, but you, maybe more than any other filmmaker I know, think of YouTube in a very distinctive way, right? Like you're... It's an evolving way. It's, it's evolving, sure. Yeah. But like, you know, I think like Oren and I, when we first started, it was like very much just like vloggers and teenagers screaming at webcams. Mm-hmm. And like we were, you know, aiming to do things that were more cinematic, but it still kind of ended up landing in that sketch comedy sort of world and like familiar sort of, you know, tropes of, of online video. Whereas I think that you kind of stepping in a little bit later because you're much younger than us. <laughs> much younger? How old are you? I'm 33. Oh, you're not that much older. I'm 26. 26. Fuck, yeah. man. Wait, when you're 33, you'll be like, yeah, 26 is much younger. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like 10 years old. <laughs> Seven years? That's, it's like you're a whole class of Hogwarts Yeah, ahead of ex- me. <laughs> exactly. Well, like, you I don't know. even get that reference. That's how old I am. <laughs> yeah. Like when Harry Potter came out, I was like, oh, it's like a kid's book. I was the first year when you were in the job market. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. The wizarding world. So I went to a Harry Potter convention this week. Yeah, you so it's did. On my mind. Nice. So, so you lean, you had like aspirations early on to be like, oh, let's do something cinematic. Let's do something kind of more TV style. I had those aspirations because of you. Like you were one of the first people I met when I moved here. I like stalked him on the internet and true. sent him an email. We could probably find that email. Wait, are you serious? <laughs> yeah. 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 Totally. It was one of those like awful, like, can I pick your brain emails yeah, that yeah. people get? Which, thank you for responding to that. Sure. And then we met on like Vermont and I, yeah. I, I picked his brain and I asked him about his thoughts about YouTube and all those things. Wait, was, so how did you find him? Because Squaresville. I was, I was a big fan of what he did with Squaresville and I thought he seemed like a cool dude. And then we had like one mutual friend. On Facebook? Yes. <laughs> so funny yeah um but you were the one that told me to check out vidcon and you were the one that told me get on tumblr because your audience is probably on tumblr you're just full of so much wisdom man sure so much well that's why i have a podcast now yeah just full of something you guys are lucky (laughs) well thank you but so my point though was that because you're approaching youtube from kind of it's both sides of the coin, right? Like you're doing stuff that's cinematic, but also doing it on like a YouTube, a quote unquote YouTube schedule, right? So it's you, like Sawyer Hartman is doing that sort of stuff. There's a handful of like people out there, that, that DSLR generation basically, mm-hmm. where, you know, with the right sort of taste levels and interest, you can kind of do that. But you're also aware of like, you're competing with your vloggers of the world, right? Like there are people mm-hmm. out there who can just make content at such a, high rate so how do you how did you come to think of that right like what was I didn't think of myself as competing with all of YouTube like one thing I realized fairly early on was that like chasing virality is a dumb thing that a lot of people get caught up on when they first start making their work and putting it online because that's like winning it's like winning the lottery or getting to the front page of reddit that's it's it would be nice if it happened but there's no math or rhyme or reason to it mm-hmm. so what i figured out instead was that i can find the audience that will respond to my work and you know i i used to say like oh everybody should be on youtube like every filmmaker should do it um i don't think that that is true necessarily anymore you do have to have a certain personality Mm -hmm. um, and have a certain sensibility, I think. Like, the reason why my work seems to have done well there is because 
the audience is primarily female. It's mm-hmm. I'm making a lot of stuff that's like coming of age and targeted towards my 17 year old self. And I know that my 17 year old self was not going to like film festivals. Mm-hmm. I was hanging out online and like watching YouTube videos and all these other things. So I started putting my work where that audience could find it. So I would say like, think of who you're making your work for and kind of put it in the areas where those people will find it. So I was making, I think at the time it was like a literary inspired vlog. So I started posting it in Tumblr with tags that like people who were already fans of those things were tracking. And I was lucky because I was going after a niche audience that was also very active and engaged. Mm-hmm. I I wouldn't know necessarily how to like go after bigger audiences like like I'm a big fan of The Bachelor now, and I don't know how I would target that fandom per se, but like literary inspired web series, I was like, got it. You're on Tumblr. Yeah. So that audience is like Poe heads? (laughs) No, they were were like people who were fans of the Lizzie Bennet Diaries, which really kind of, I think, changed the game in terms of scripted web series and this one specific audience because there were there were shows i was a fan of before that like high maintenance and other things that that were great but they didn't have those kind of really dedicated rabid fan bases that were willing to come back week after week and make gifts and headcanons and all that and i come from i come from fandom as well like i wrote fan fiction from when i was i think illegally when i was 11 and you had to be 13 to have an account but i just Wide, I know. I was mostly on fanfiction.net, and then I had some stuff on like a Ron Hermione site called Checkmate. Checkmate it? I don't know. I don't remember. I also helped found my own site. I know this is super interesting, guys. Talk about my fanfiction backgrounds. Unknowableroom.org. Unknowable room? Unknowable room. Yeah. I was a mod. NBD. (laughs) Yeah. Well, so, uh, but what's interesting about it, though, is that. You know, I think oftentimes people talk about finding your fan base through that sort of targeted niche, right? Like from the very beginning, I think people who were finding success online started with a very specific like slice of life and mm-hmm. then ex- extrapolating from there, right? Oh, yeah. So, so yeah, Wait, so that makes complete sense. Yeah. I mean, I think because you said like you can't like get virality, you shouldn't chase it because you can't really find it. But to me, that's like that's my method. It's like, figure out we want to try to make a video that goes viral Mm -hmm. like i made in i don't know a long time ago 2006 2007 these like twilight spoofs right and they did like so well that the entire company changed the whole methodology (laughs) to spoof like harry potter and twilight and you know whatever young adult stuff was coming out at that time Mm -hmm. and it totally worked so i mean there are and like you look at a company like buzzfeed you know like they know how to title an article oh yeah so that it gets there's definitely things you can do to chase the zeitgeist i think that'll that'll increase your odds and if you look at somebody like casey neistat i think he's a youtuber who's done a really good job of finding that but even like if you listen to him he's like i don't know what makes a viral video i know elements that might help this but even if you look at all of his videos, all of which have like amazing like view count statistics, there's still some that do phenomenally and others that are kind of lower. And and it's hard to distill exactly what it was that distinguished them. And why it popped, yeah. I think like where it goes bad is when someone says like, oh, Harry Potter's big, let's see some Harry Potter stuff. But the people making it are not Harry Potter fans. Yeah, You know, it's like too. when you're trying, when it, you're not authentic or truthful yeah. is when people see right through that. Mm-hmm. But I think 
I don't know. To me, the best equation no, is no posers. Yeah. It's like when you're <laughs> really smelling. into something that's part of, you know, and mm-hmm. you make a video about it. It's always, yeah, it's always like tell the most personal version of this because it's like every, every story has already been told, but it hasn't been told by you yet. So mm-hmm. do you. So let's talk a little bit since we're on the topic of Harry Potter. <laughs> after, you know, you kind of found some success with the Telltale vlog. At what point were you approached by New Form Digital? So I had done a second series called Kissing in the Rain, right, uh, right. the one I shot with my ex-boyfriend. <laughs> and along with that, I had this kind of like Tumblr transmedia experiment because I wanted people to submit fan fiction. And if we reblogged it to the main Tumblr, it became canon, um, which means nothing if you don't know what that means <laughs> already. I'm not going to explain it. But anyway, Kathleen Grace, who is the head of New Form Digital, she was like one of the first Tumblr users or something like that. Sure, yeah. yeah. It, all those New Form people, they all came from Next New Networks, which was in the same building as like ah, College Humor and yeah. Vimeo and uh, Tumblr. Makes sense. So it's like when I think of like New York, like yeah. early internet, I literally imagine them all like riding in the same elevator. Like <laughs> I'm sure they did. They trading all hoodies. Each other. Yeah, they all know each other. Yeah. yeah. And so Kathleen found my stuff on Tumblr and she called me in for a meeting and she asked me what else I had in development at the time. And so I had wanted to do a short about like vloggers mm-hmm. for a while. And I was also kind of interested in the world of wizard rock, <laughs> which is a musical movement about Harry Potter. And so she asked me to be a part of the first round incubators for New Forms projects. And that's kind of how that happened. So in terms of like personal timeline, I graduated and did one year in the NBC page program. Then the first year after that was all self-funded work. Then the second year after that, that was when other people started giving me money. And then I would put my own money on top of that to make it better. So like New Form would be like, here's some cash. And then I'd be like, great, that's so awesome. I'm going to put 5,000 of my own money into this to make it even better, which is not a sustainable model. About the first time you got paid? Paid like direct like myself where I could keep the money and I wasn't yeah. putting my own money into it. Well, well I think it's okay to even right, like, yeah. even to, if you put some money, it's okay in. for you to plus it. Yeah. Right. Like Sawhorse wouldn't be around if they didn't. Yeah. No, obviously you might lose things, but somebody is saying, Hey, we want to give you money to direct either produce, direct, do everything, you know, mm-hmm. and give us the final product. Or we just like how you make things. We want to hire you to direct with our crew. Well, I think new form would probably be the first case where it was like, a separate company giving me like they brought me in and they were like we like what you're doing here's a pile of cash give us something right and you pitched them an idea yeah and i pitched them well like it was it didn't feel like a pitch meeting honestly it was basically like a general where i came in and i was like this is all the stuff i'm thinking about and they were like we like that one do that so it was pretty informal but that was the first time somebody gave me like a significant chunk of cash and I took that money and added my own 5000 on top of that to a short. And that was that, that felt good. It felt like I could point it to my parents and say, like, hey, Ron Howard and Brian Grazer are giving us sure. money. And that has its own, like, uh, legitimacy right. in the eyes of parents. We did. We met them, I think, in their offices once and, like, picked their brains for knowledge and stuff. Oh, who, which meeting was better, that one or the one with Matt? The one with Matt, I think. And I'm not even just saying that because it was a one-on-one thing, whereas it was like everybody at that like, table. You can meet these guys, but you have five minutes and we're going to videotape you and then yeah. get your yeah. reaction. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, it, it, was more it is like, weird. I hired a photographer to come take pictures of us meeting together, yeah. though, just just for publicity's sake. Just, you know. Yeah, you know, cash. I can't believe I just said videotape. 
videotape, like a cellular Sound like phone. like a grandpa. <laughs> they snapped it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but so 2014, that was the year New Form offered me that. And then I also got a couple of like $100 per day freelance jobs as a director. And What were those? Or how'd you get those? I think there was just like friends of friends, stuff like that. 2015 was the first time that a company like hired me onto a project where it already had its own producer and all its own budget. And they were just like, we want you to come and direct this. And this is your like directing fee, which was still not that much money. I think it was like, what, 1500 a day for a two day shoot. It was fine. Oh, man. Yeah, it's not yeah. bad. Deal. Yeah, that's cool. And what, My rate's what company now. was that? It was Hello Giggles and Taylor Loft. Nice. Oh, mm-hmm. and, and was branded content? Yeah, it was branded content. Cool. And what was did? How did they find you? A Facebook group. Facebook groups are actually really great for oh, networking these days. Somebody posted like, "Hey, we're looking for a comedy director. Um, please send your samples." And so I sent them my samples, and I think it really helped that my work kind of stood out in that. Like, I have a very specific like aesthetic, I guess I would say, because I found that was what was helping us stand out in the YouTube space. So. Um, I had like period stuff and a lot of like colors and Wes Anderson-y nonsense. So I think that helped us stand out and and they liked it. So they hired me. And you cool. feel like that's your aesthetic for everything you do? Like for most things? Not for everything. I like, I, I was trying to move away from that actually a little bit. And the most recent thing I did, which was um, the I Ship It series, <laughs> different from the short film, uh, which we did for the CW Seed. Just because I didn't, I was starting to feel like a crutch. Like, mm-hmm. I didn't want, like, people's favorite things about my work to be things I had stolen from other people. I kind of wanted to, like, find and develop my own style. So I was like, okay, I'm going to actively not do, like, colorful wallpapers and center framing and see what sticks. Like, I, that's not to say I won't ever do, like, heightened aesthetics again. I just kind of wanted to remove that one tool that has become kind of easy for me to fall back on. Can you tell us what the what your aesthetic consists of? So what my cool, aesthetic? Um, cool wallpaper. <laughs> cool framing. wallpapers. I love cool wallpapers. So you would go and wallpaper places or you would find places that we have cool We couldn't ever afford wallpaper, actually. It's very expensive to buy it. So what we would do is buy fabric by the yard that looked like wallpapers, and then we would tape it up to the walls. And that was always kind of our way to make the backgrounds kind of interesting. That's really great also because having done a little bit of wallpaper work, it's so hard. Like you mm-hmm. get air bubbles, mm-hmm. you're ruining walls. Yeah, no, oh, fabric yeah. is Hang awesome. in some fabric, you put, that's it. You put painter's tape on top of carpet tape. Mm-hmm. No, oh. wait, carpet tape on top of painter tape. And then you put that to the wall because the painter's tape removes very easily and the carpet tape is very sticky. So that's... Pro tip. Yeah, that's really good. Wait, so when you say we did this, who are you talking about? My you production and designer and I. No, I had, I had like a pretty full crew from the beginning because I like I, I couldn't do all of the jobs myself. So I had a DP and production designer that I worked with very consistently. And my DP was my editor. And that was not good for our relationship romantically. <laughs> so I got a new editor. So I have like a DP, a production designer and an editor and a composer that I work with a lot. And you they would always be paid no matter they would if you were be paid. getting paid or not. Yes, they were always paid. If I wasn't getting paid, it was like 100 a day. because, And I think it, it made them very loyal to me. Mm-hmm. Um, because even though it wasn't a lot of money, I think they appreciated it. 
And once I started getting paid, I made sure that they were getting paid as well. And with your production designer or like your producer or anything, were people ever like, can you just shoot on this wall? Like, do we really need to go buy fabric? I was always the producer in the beginning. So I was always very lenient on myself in terms of the budget. And that that came with its own problems because if any time there was like a creative issue where like my production designer would be like, well, we just need like 300 more dollars. I'd be like, fuck it. Let's have 300 more dollars. So I'd always end up like way over budget, but it's kind of worth it. <laughs> yeah. I think it's definitely worth it. Right. I think like, it's yeah. always worth it, but I feel like I'm always in these situations where I'm like, Oh, that would be cool to get this wall to be yeah. blue or whatever. And then just, you know, when we're over budget and people start cutting things, it's like those are the first things to go. And that was, I think, my real struggle once I started getting to a point where we had other people producing, um, where it was like, oh, I can't just be like, just spend more money and throw it at that. But I think that also forces you to be more creative and also be a like fucking professional. <laughs> um, yeah. Come in under budget and on time. And yeah. so, okay, sorry, can we get, I'm just really I'm curious about your aesthetic details. So oh, yeah. center framing. Not always center framing. I don't think that that's so much my aesthetic as something that we just like stole. I, I actually really like, I don't know, that like close. I do two, three, five a lot, but I've been trying to get away from that. But colorful backgrounds for sure. I tend to have like very pretty actors. It's like, a, it's, a, it's a little twee, right? Really? Yeah, um, sometimes. Yeah, I would say it's like, twee has a negative connotation to it. I would call it whimsical. Not when you're my age. <laughs> uh, do you prefer long lenses or wide lenses? Or I like long lenses, Yeah. I don't play in that world as much. I tend to spend the most time in prep with my production designer and costume designer because I trust my DP to kind of find the look that I'm going for. Like usually I'll find a bunch of screen grabs and watch a bunch of clips and watch a bunch of movies with him. And then he'll kind of say, this is what I want to do and shoot it on this. And he shows me a couple of test things and I'm like, great, cool. Yeah, let's do that. And do you have a lighting aesthetic? I try to like find, there's this website called filmgrab.com mm-hmm. that I love very much. And so every every day of shooting, well, not every day of shooting, but like in preparation for every day of shooting, I would find like the lighting references that we wanted for that specific location. So I wouldn't say there's something very specific. I, I do like Edison bulbs a lot. Um, so yeah. I use that a lot. I wonder if the guy that makes Film Grab knows how many filmmakers. I hope so. Use I'm his sure, site. Surely. That dude, like, uh, he needs a it's tip like button. Yeah, like yeah. everyone we know. I, I want to talk a little bit about because I think that this is something interesting. I think young filmmakers oftentimes beat themselves up over like cribbing from directors, and I think Wes Anderson it does happen pretty regularly. But like, mm-hmm. because or like Tim Burton, there's a handful of people whose I mean style I, is so heightened and so obvious yeah. that. Mm-hmm you as a young person are like okay like i want to be like them so like let me let me experiment you know right but like in the same way that like all great illustrators start by tracing you know you have to figure that out a little bit and so you know i would say look maybe you can like like in general people can lay off like long lateral tracking moves and like center punched inserts a little bit, but otherwise it's fine guys. Yeah. Wes Anderson didn't I invent like all inserts should be center punched. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, like a top down, you know, like yeah. a Wes oh, Anderson yeah, top yeah. down center, yeah, yeah. Punch, you know, I like, can't stand like someone adjusts a pencil oh, yeah. mid frame or whatever, you know, like, yeah, like I, that stuff is very explicitly West, but I think like otherwise it's fine. 
he yeah. didn't invent colorful palettes. Right. Don't worry about it. That's true. Yeah, I think it's very much... I think it's because, um, who, who was it? I think both my production designer and my editor, actually, they both had mentors who told them like, oh, when you're a very, when you're just starting out, it's very easy to tell who's just starting out because they'll always go for the heightened thing because mm-hmm, sure. it belies a lack of confidence or something. And so I think it made us all like get in our own heads about it. And yeah. we were like, oh God, we can't do that at all anymore. And what I'm realizing as I've been working more is just like, no, yeah, it's it's steal what you want to steal because you have to like learn what fits for you. And then eventually you kind of see what's following you across each right, thing, right. across every project. And the things that stick are the ones that are yours. Yeah, absolutely. Well said. And I think also those people who were like, you know, saying that maybe it lacked confidence. What are they doing now? Right. Like you had you developed that was Ron Howard. So. It was Ron Howard. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, Ron Howard. No, but you know, I think like in the same way, like your aesthetics stuck out. That's what got you work early on, Mm -hmm. right? And like, I think there's a ton of different references that you can pull from. I would say I ship it owes as much to Edgar Wright as it does to Wes Anderson in a fun, great way. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? So Pete and I broke up and it feels like my heart exploded across space and time into a million little pieces. I thought we were happy. One minute we were performing wizard rock duets on stage together. You were the Harry to my Jenny. The next, you found a new Jenny. People aren't going to understand. They're going to make fun of me, but I don't care. Peter Hackett, you broke me. And I am going to ruin you. And we were pulling from so many different things, too. Like, I think I'm struggling with answering your question about the aesthetics thing because I'm still, you know, I'm, I'm still pretty young and I'm still figuring out what is uniquely mine out of all these things. Well, I've been doing it for like over 10 years and I'm in the same boat. I can tell you what my sense of, like, I can tell you what type of stories I like much more easily than what aesthetics are mine. Like, I I would say I really like love stories. I like coming of age. I like things that are, you know, literary inspired sometimes. I love musicals. All of those things are things I like. You're so stoked for La La Land. I am so stoked for La La Land. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, but I feel like those are things that unite a direct, like, like here's directors that do good romantic comedies or whatever. Here's directors that do good action films or but it's like your aesthetic or how you use your tools is something that, you know, I mean, like Tarantino is like famous for like, right, just everything's like an homage to some filmmaker. But <laughs> it's so Tarantino when you see his work. And it's like, that's the trick of like, I don't know, I think that's what makes being a director that stands out hard is not because you like love stories. It's because you're shooting, a you know, a high school love story, like a noir right. film, you know. Yeah, I, I, I think you have that to love movies, right? Like yeah, genre bending is always fun. Like the most recent project I did was a short film about like two best friends in a zombie apocalypse. So it was very like clueless meets The Walking Dead. Like when in doubt, just take two genres and mash them up and call it original. Yeah. So I, I want to get back to the process of taking a short, right? That was like mm-hmm. uh, the, uh, the Ice Shipper short was doing great online you know, like finding its audience, finding its fan base in the same way that, you know, your previous stuff had. And it was like, you know, it's very Tumblr, right? Mm -hmm. And then 
how does C- the CW come on board? What's that pitch like? How do you take it from one thing into a full-on series? So that was kind of an interesting thing because New Form, as far as I know, they sold all of their first-round pilots without any of the creators in the room. So I have no idea what that conversation looked like or how many rounds they went and how formal of a pitch it was. I just got a call one day that was like, hey, the CW wants to buy I Ship It and do a series. Can you do a pitch deck for us? So I I created kind of like a little PowerPoint slide that had inspiration images and a roughly outlined like 10 potential episodes none of which really (laughs) ended up being the actual thing, but kind of got across the tone of it. And then maybe like two months after that, we got another call that was like, we're doing it. Here's a contract. So you you never pitched in the room or anything? I never pitched in the room, no. Interesting. Yeah. Fucking awesome. Yeah, it was great. (laughs) I feel like I snuck in there. (laughs) Yeah, well done. Well, I mean, you have to make a good short in order for that to happen, but (laughs) we'll kill her. And so did you write the whole series? I did not, no. Um, so they picked up the series and then immediately they were like, you should probably get like some writing staff. So I had two staff writers, Rachel Kylie and uh, Julia Prescott, and they were both great. They wrote, I think they both wrote three episodes and I wrote four. And when you put together this room where you, was it a like sort of traditional style TV room where you're all breaking story together and then nope. separating and then pitching, punching at, up or no? At that point, actually, I had already broken the entire story. So I, I guess I, I skipped a step where, so the CW had bought the show, but we had the kind of like season outline. So I pitched that over the phone and they like greenlit my season outline. And so once we brought the writers in. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.